Welcome back to Opinions My Own. I'm Paul Caulfield, and with Zila Costa-Grimes, we uh, are bringing to you various aspects of money laundering, technology, and the law. And in, in this episode, Zila had a really nice opportunity to speak with a partner at Sidley Austin, Lily Tesler. Um, just to level set, a few weeks ago, we talked to uh, Amanda Wick, who was also a lawyer who had moved over to the fintech space. Lily actually offers a, a try and true lawyer's perspective on what she's doing uh, within the space. But you you had the, the time with her. So uh, Zila, why don't you give us a little bit of a preview? Sure. So Lily, just for everyone to understand, when I talk about working at a law firm, we actually worked together many years ago. And Lily is now a partner, as Paul mentioned at Sidley. She's actually the head of Sidley's fintech and blockchain group. Um, her clients are a lot of the companies we've been talking about. And a lot of the companies, um, the folks we've been speaking to in this podcast actually work at. So um, the fintechs and the technology companies and you know the banks, all of these are clients of Lily's and she helps them kind of navigate this very, very uh, difficult terrain when it comes to regulation, new regulation, lack of regulation. She's there for her clients and gives them kind of that solid legal advice. Um, it's an interesting industry. There aren't many women in, in this industry. Lily's kind of um, young and innovative and has built this group out at Sidley. So we kind of talk about all of those things um, in our conversation. So I'm excited for you all to hear it. Let's give it a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Opinions My Own, our AML podcast. And with me today um, is Lilia Tesla. So as you all know, I'm one of your co-hosts, Zila Costa-Grimes and Lily, um, and I actually used to work together. Um, Lily is a partner and head of Sidley's FinTech and Blockchain Group. Um, she has had a varied career and is really an expert in her field. And Lily, like myself, is a lawyer. So I actually think we're gonna have a great conversation today about the types of clients she advises. As you know, previous podcasts have kind of, we've talked to people who I think would be clients of Lily's. Who knows if they are, we won't ask her. Um, and also just some of the issues that have come up in this space. So Lily, maybe you could kick us off and just tell us a bit about yourself and kind of how you got into this line of work. Great, thank you, Zila, and thank you, thank you for having me here today. So, by, by background, I uh, come from a traditional financial services regulatory background. Worked in on uh, securities, broker dealer, regulatory issues. Actually, as in house counsel with my in many financial institutions in, in New York, uh, but also really had a keen interest in some of the uh, companies that I worked for that were developing emerging technologies primarily for regulated financial institutions, algorithmic trading, alternative trading systems were coming into being. And I was tasked with some of those roles in implementing um, the existing regulation, how it applies to you know, digitizing and creating electronic trading tools, um, which was kind of the FinTech of, of that time. And then um, really tried to evolve my practice and went into private practice starting to work with other regulated fintech, fintechs from robo-advisors, high-frequency trading firms, and fortunate enough to start working with blockchain companies early on um, in, in uh, the development of some of these uh, technologies coming into mainstream uh, adoption. I started working with, um, over six years ago, with uh, some of the prominent cryptocurrency exchanges 
and grappling with the issues of how do you apply the securities laws to the digital assets that are supported on blockchains? Are they securities? Are they not securities? How do the exchanges determine how they should be regulated? And really um, evolved uh, as the law evolved in this space, my practice evolved and the market participants evolved over time. Were you always drawn to kind of regulation and securities regulation specifically, or is that something you just kind of fell into? No, I, I always had an interest um, in, in financial services in one way or another. I had actually have a ba accounting background, always liked math, um, which is not a typical background for a lawyer, but I liked the securities industry, the financial statements of, of when I did audits um, of public companies uh, I was drawn to. And, and so, I don't know, that naturally transcended into some of my experience working with, with trading platforms and and. Um, and, and now more emerging uh, financial technology companies. So as kind of the head of this group, I know part of your responsibilities are to grow the group, to grow the customer base. So what type of clients are coming to you? Are, are these, like you mentioned, blockchain companies? Are they, are they the exchanges themselves, the companies on the exchanges? Like who, who comes to you and what type of advice are they seeking typically? Yeah, so I... Started out my practice when I was in private practice, working with a lot of the early stage emerging technology companies, really seeking uh, regulatory advice, primarily some were um, seeking advice on early stage fundraising rounds, uh, either traditional fundraising or token offering fundraising, and, and also educating some of these clients on the myriad of regulations that, that may apply to their technology that they may not be well versed in. And it was also an opportunity for me to learn about the various technologies from the developers themselves. Often I was dealing with CEOs, chief technology officers, teaching me about their technology and, and then me teaching them about the regulations as, as they're uh, applying to this technology. So it was, it was very interesting working with some of those early stage companies, which I still do today. But my practice has evolved and Sidley's practice is, is also evolved more broadly to, in addition to supporting the emerging technology companies, also supporting our bigger financial institution uh, clients that, that are adopting and utilizing the technology to reinvent and, and modify the, you know, the existing financial infrastructure uh, with integrating blockchain technologies or other emerging technologies. I also work with um, established companies, public companies, some private companies outside of financial services that are integrating um, blockchain technologies into their business, from social media to healthcare, supply chain management. All, all of that is, is being uh, reconstructed, taking in consideration some of this new technology that's coming into being. And so I work with them on my rate of regulatory issues, uh, transactions, MA in this space. Um, certainly enforcement actions um, as, as the regulatory environment is, is uncertain um, in, in this area. So it, it's a pretty broad scope of, of clients that we support now. And another area that's on the rise um, is just you know, mining, Bitcoin mining infrastructure, mining other cryptocurrencies is also a big, big area of growth that we're seeing in, in North America generally and around the world. That makes a lot of sense. And so do you work often with your colleagues in M&A, which is mergers and acquisitions for those who don't know, or, or even like you said, enforcement actions with the SEC, do you work with litigators on those and kind of you're the regulatory legal expert and then they may have kind of more um, process knowledge? Mm -hmm. 
so I certainly work on, on a, each of those types of matters that, that you mentioned. Often, um, I'm a regulatory expert on, on the transactions, so the merged acquisition deals, or we've had a number of clients conduct IPOs or SPAC transactions that, that relate to blockchain and digital assets. So I can certainly bring uh, the knowledge of the regulatory uh, considerations as it relates to the transaction or the digital assets or blockchain technology that may be involved. But I also bring in my team um, at Sidley, you know, bring subject matter expertise in educating our deal team, um, our litigators on blockchain technology and, 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 and the ins and outs of, of the business itself uh, beyond um, whether it's, you know, we have to conduct the operational business due diligence or drafting the business description disclosures. We can kind of speak our client's language uh, given the knowledge base we, we've gained over the years in working with these types of clients. And then similarly on the regulatory enforcement side and litigation side, we, we do bring the, the subject matter expertise and, and regulatory uh, guidance uh, to, to, to our clients and in the investigation, but also have a really strong relationship with regulators. And, and you know, given our relationship and reputation we've built in, in terms of navigating the, the regulatory environment and that certainty, we're able to also you know, proactively advocate on behalf of our clients in those investigations. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess one question I had is, since you have kind of this broad perspective on all these different types of clients, what are the differences you see between them? For example, do the blockchain companies have a lot of in-house expertise? And like you said, you're learning from them and then maybe you're more of an expert with some of these bigger institutions. Um, like kind of what does that relationship play out like? Because I imagine there are many instances where the client knows much more about their product or blockchain or maybe, you know, some specific technology, technology, but in other instances, maybe the client is looking to you to educate them a little bit and kind of what that dynamic is like. Yeah, so d definitely I think bo both ways um, in terms of some clients, I'm educating them about the regulations and often um, you know, certain clients come to us early in the process that they we work with them in modifying their products and service offerings to align with the existing regulations so that they kind of are, once their product goes to market, it's a compliant uh, path forward. So, so that I think is more on the emerging company side, especially as, as some of these tech developers are know the technology very well, but not necessarily the, the regulations and, and the myriad of regulations, which we can get into that, that stems beyond just, just you know, securities laws or SEC's reach. And, and then the second on, on the more institutional product side, since we have worked with some of the emerging technology companies, we, we know how the technology works and, and what products are already out there and can help educate on the product side, the bigger institutions as, as they are especially on the legal and compliance side, more hesitant to allow their business to proceed with some of these products without fully understanding what the products are, what the risks are. A good example is DeFi. We get a lot of questions of what is DeFi, and, and, and I educate a lot of our in-house legal uh, team on, on the risks related to, to embarking in DeFi or NFTs, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and DeFi being decentralized finance products. Um, and, and educating the, those bigger institutions prior to their um, you know, strategy team or blockchain innovation team uh, launching new, new products in that area. 
So for any listeners who may not know what both those things stand for, would you mind giving them the 30-second version? I'm hoping our listeners know, but you never know. So decentralized finance is is a way uh, for um, transactions to occur uh, peer-to-peer among two um, unrelated individuals utilizing blockchain technology without a centralized intermediary um, to, to to, to be involved in the transaction. And, and we see you know, it's a very broad term that, that may be implemented in the lending space, in the decentralized exchanges or decentralized um, uh, insurance space. So there, there's a lot of different applications, but, but the concept is, is peer-to-peers can transact with, without a centralized intermediary using the technology. Non-fungible tokens are unique technology and code that got created um, and and is available on certain types of blockchains um, that that allow you to create a unique identifier that represents uh, either physical or intangible assets. So think um, a unique identifier that represents art um, held in a a vault or in a studio, and, and you have a digital representation on a blockchain that represents your ownership to that art or your title to that art. And and given the unique nature of the technology cannot be replicated. And so it's non-fungible and and, um, is is your unique um, token as compared to most other tokens, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others out there are all fungible. So they're interoperable. You know, you have one, I have one Bitcoin, you have another, we can trade them and it's the same asset effectively. And what we do, I will add, Zila, you know, we do have blockchain educational series that had launched at Sidley a few years ago that has a number of very interesting um, webinars that, that educate clients and, and general public that are available on some of these concepts. Yeah, I, I saw some of those on your website. I'll actually link them in the bio when we post um, this episode for our listeners, because honestly, a lot of these concepts it just takes a, a, a little digging. Once you kind of dig in, things start to make sense. It, it, I, I always tease everybody that uh, lawyers like to use lots of uh, specialized terms and defined terms and acronyms and finance does too. So when you mix the two, you end up with <laughs> full sentences and paragraphs uh, that the layperson may not be able to understand, but that once you dig in, you can definitely wrap your mind around. Um, and, and a lot of um, Paul and I, my co-hosts are always talking about how there are actually so many free resources out there if you're just willing to look and take a look. And so many people like you who are experts in their field are giving away a lot of free knowledge. So people should definitely take advantage. I'm kind of moving into AML because this is a podcast about AML and technology. Um, and I was just wondering what kind of AML issues have you seen your clients face? Is, is that some, is AML an issue that comes up for you? I know you're more focused on those kind of securities regulation, but AML is obviously a component of, of that in some sense. So, so many of the uh, digital assets um, that, that are out there are considered convertible virtual currencies that, that are regulated by FinCEN um, uh, for, for money, as a money, effectively money transmission um, activities or money transmission businesses. So many of the cryptocurrency exchanges or even blockchain companies uh, that, that support transactions in these assets have to be registered with FinCEN. Um, at the federal level and, and with various state banking agencies as money transmitters. 
and, and they are all then subject to Bank Secrecy Act requirements, AML KYC for all users of, the, of their platform. So certainly AML plays a big role um, with respect to digital assets and convertible virtual currencies generally, regardless of whether they are securities or commodities or, or both. And so that's definitely a big part of Cindy's uh, practice and advising clients um, on, on these types of issues. And, and, and it's important that this is beyond financial services. I think often the premise of Bank Secrecy Act and AML, there's a presumption that that's financial uh, services activity, but really we, we see companies in the gaming space and the social media space uh, engaged in, in digital assets, in digital asset convertible virtual currency transactions. And, and that may be regulated activity that requires AML. So we, we talk to clients um, in, in a lot of different industries about the need to register or possibly rely on an exemption. You may not need to register, maybe exemptions that are applicable to the particular business model uh, that, that's being proposed. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, um, for those who don't know, Lily, Lily gave a little bit of a warning earlier when she mentioned enforcement actions, but a failure to register if you have an obligation to do so can get you in quite a bit of trouble. Um, so understanding, like Lily very eloquently highlighted, when and why you have to be registered and what implications that might have for an AML program you need to set up or other obligations you might have is, is really critical when you're setting up any type of um, kind of program or anything else. Um, what type of issues have you seen come up? Are there any kind of pitfalls. I know you mentioned that you work with a lot of emerging companies and that oftentimes they'll bring you in very early. Is that a common pitfall you've seen that startups don't bring you in early enough or maybe they bring you in too early or kind of what are some issues you've seen? Yeah, so I, I think you know, tra traditionally emerging companies don't, don't require a high level of regulatory advice or diligence at the early stage seed round, series A or B fundraising, and down the road as they become more established companies, they, they bring in regulatory experts. I think this space, especially blockchain digital assets, is a bit different. We've seen companies get in trouble by not complying with the securities laws early on in the fundraising process, especially as we saw the ICO boom and token sales being conducted without compliance with the securities laws, which the SEC uh, you know, had, had Put out warnings on, and there have been a number of enforcement actions, both settled actions and, and uh, court actions in, in this case, in this case and scenario. So I, I do think it's unique in, in that if companies in the blockchain space, they do bring in regulatory experts early on to determine, you know, are they conducting compliant securities offerings if tokens are involved? And are, you know, is their platform viable um, without you know, complying with certain registration requirements? And, and, and that may be you know, considering issues such as, does the platform need to register, like I mentioned, the, the money services business, money transmission licenses, the, um, does, does the exchange support digital assets that might be securities and have to consider broker-dealer registration or national securities exchange registration or an applicable exemption? If the products, and we do are seeing a lot of products developed that are creating derivatives and swaps futures, do they need to be regulated by the CFTC in, in the U.S.? And then all of these things that I'm mentioning are all U.S.-specific regulators and regulations. The technology is being implemented globally. 
And so there are a lot of regulators around the world that are also creating their own regulations that may apply specifically to, to blockchain technologies or, or fintechs more, more broadly as they're trying to capture uh, the, the global reach of their particular regulations. And so all, all that said is, is many of these companies that are growing very quickly at the early stage should just be mindful that an enforcement action down the road is, is very expensive, costly, and could impair your business uh, going forward, because we've seen a number of companies having to shut down um, as a result of, of substantial enforcement actions on a, on a global scale. So, so um, the, the earlier, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And I've also, I, I would also warn folks that even if to your point, you haven't gotten to the stage yet where an enforcement action might be appropriate, registering as an MSB takes time. That's not something you can do overnight. You know, making those filings and filing those applications takes time, which may delay any promises you've made to investors or roll out of a product or a platform or anything else, as, as you mentioned. Um, so kind of stepping back, our podcast focuses on kind of demystifying some of these spaces and AML for a broader audience. So most of our uh, audience are lawyers and compliance officers, but there are a lot of people who are just interested in the space. It's in the news all the time. So I was just wondering, um, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that a layperson could have about blockchain um, and the businesses that your clients are in? You know, the biggest misconception is really just the focus on the cryptocurrencies themselves, like blockchain is just Bitcoin or you know, it's an investment in crypto assets. I think that there's a lot of, there is a portion of investments that are happening in some of these commodities or some that may be securities, but really that's not the value um, in the technology itself. It's a use case. So payment being one or investments being one use case that you can use a technology for. And I think over time, we'll see in five, 10, 15 years, the underpinnings of all of the technology that we use and this software referred to as Web 3.0 will be with a blockchain under underlier that you don't even know exists. You know, blockchain is a technology that's revolu revolutionizing the way we communicate, the way we transact and share data. Um, and it'll, I think the biggest misconception is, is some of those benefits and how it's gonna change, change the way that our underpinnings of our technology work. Um, and at, you know, years from now, we won't even be talking about blockchain, we'll just be using it uh, without knowing it. Right, exactly. I think that is true. I think many people don't quite understand some of the distinctions. And we've talked about that with some other guests about how, you know, Bitcoin does not equal blockchain, what blockchain actually is. And, and to your very good point, I think we often think of blockchain in a very specific context when it actually has applicability in all types of different products. Um, it's very interesting. So we spoke with Amanda Wick um, an episode or two ago about the relationship between government, companies, and law. Um, Amanda is obviously formerly a FinCEN, formerly a prosecutor, now at Chainalysis. Um, you have spent most of your life, from my understanding, in kind of private practice, but um, and you know even in-house. But you've also worked a lot with government, and obviously worked very deeply in the law and kind of reading regulation and interpreting it. I'm sure helping clients comment on new law that is developing. Um, so how have you felt about the many recent developments in crypto and blockchain? Um, I know you mentioned FinCEN and other regulators. 
um, kind of what, what if, I know that there's been new rules kind of issued and new guidance. Do you feel like that's enough? Do you think that there's space for more? So there's definitely been a lot of pronouncements, whether proactive, informal guidance from various regulators and, and some um, announcements through enforcement actions, um, or even we just saw a company, a cryptocurrency exchange sanctioned um, and it, as well. So there's been a lot of developments, but I, I do think in saying this from the perspective of the industry, there could be more and there could be faster guidance. I think the, the technology is evolving faster than the regulations or even the regulators can keep up. So, so many feel frustration that you know, the guidance and, and the way to apply the existing regulations to the technology is not evolving fast enough. And, and as a result, you know, there's failure to comply or you know, the, there's regulation by enforcement, um, many say. And, and we do see that in, in some way where the guidance is made through enforcement, which is not ideal. But I do think it's a way to curb um, some of the, the growth as the regulators are trying to learn and evolve um, the guidance with, with the change in, in regulation. And in an area, I'll give you a specific example that I've been very focused on is custody and how broker dealers can support custody of digital assets and digital asset securities. I, I've been on behalf of the industry, very proactive and, and vocal on the need for more guidance in this area dating back to 2019, where I published a white paper on unfrequently asked questions the SEC should be answering on how to apply SEC rule 15C33 to uh, digital assets within a broker-dealer. And just late last year, December 2020, SEC finally put out a special purpose broker-dealer that allows for certain path forward for broker-dealers to custody digital asset securities but effectively it's a five-year safe harbor as the regulators are still trying to think through the broad scope of, of what might be permissible within a broker-dealer. So it, it is some guidance. It's not you know, all-encompassing and not you know, doesn't address every scenario, which we're still working through with clients, but it's an example of you know, regulators taking their time, thinking through um, how, how to approach some of these issues and, and, and providing uh, guidance. Um. This is kind of a theme I think a couple of, of our podcast guests have touched on, which is this idea, and I think you mentioned it even from the outset, this idea that the law hasn't caught up to where we are with technology, with products, with reality, frankly. Um, what has your approach been? How do you kind of approach that, kind of filling that gap for your clients? Because I imagine they come to you and say, we want to come out with this product and you say, okay, well, here's the existing law and there's a gap between where the existing law is and this product you want to put out. And it's not a hundred percent clear, you know, whether what you're doing requires regulation, uh, requires registration, for example, or, you know, is whether this is a security kind of, how do you navigate that gray space and help your clients manage that risk? different ways. Certainly one way, and you know, as lawyers, we take the existing regulations or, or legal guidance and precedent and apply it to the fact pattern and use our own judgment and in, in, in advising clients on, on a path, compliant path forward. The second is leveraging our relationships with the regulators and having a dialogue on, on you know, the, the gap in regulation or the, the gray area the clients are operating in and, and either seeking proactive relief or informal you know, responses and feedback on whether this is the right path forward 
for the client. Um, I have strong relationship with SEC's FinHub division and um, in, in have had a numerous meetings with them on behalf of clients with innovative products to, to, to gauge the, their reaction to how would the existing regulations apply in the context of, of those uh, particular products and, and get either no action relief or informal guidance to them that, that the client and, and our advice is on the right path uh, from a compliance perspective going forward. Similarly, on the broker-dealer side, we have strong relationships with the FINRA's Innovation Hub and, and the key members of their digital asset blockchain team that interact regularly with the SEC. And so we, we have interactive discussions with them on, on, on compliance. And, and my colleagues um, uh, on the CFTC and bank regulatory side have similar relationships with, with other regulators uh, across the SILI platform uh, to help support our clients in, in having those discussions. Um, so the, those are, I think, the, the two avenues that, that we'd approach. I would say lastly, um, just overall industry-related, I'm very proactive and involved in, in various industry groups that are having discussions with the commissioners at the SEC on, on the need for safe harbors or more guidance, with various congressmen that are proposing bills uh, to modify the existing regulations to apply to this technology. There are various states um, initiatives that, that I'm actively involved in, in, in talking about whether there should be specific changes to state uh, regulations that may be more pro-blockchain uh, in, in this area to provide more regulatory clarity where there may not be as much at the federal level yet. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like relationships are key, which you have in spades. Um, well, Thank you so much for answering all these questions, Lily. Your clients are lucky to have you. Um, and thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, happy to do it. Nice speaking with you. This has been a production of Opinions My Own. I'm Zila Acosta-Grimes, and with Paul Caulfield, we are your hosts, bringing you episodes breaking down the state and future of anti-money laundering, technology, and the law. Thank you to Fordham Law School and our production assistant, Ava Lichter, for their support. If you have suggestions, questions, or would like to be on the podcast, please email us at opinionsmyownpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mine underscore podcast and YouTube at opinionsmyown. Thank you for listening.